Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jason. I'm the pastor of New Hope Church. And as we do every week, we want to just take this time to collect our hearts, bring the different pieces of our hearts together, and, and really feel the weight of this moment that this is not just some ordinary moment. We're not just going through the motions as a community when we get together. We're not just on to the next thing. But we believe that we serve a living God who loves us, who is filled with thoughts towards us, and actually wants to speak to us. So right now, let's just pull our hearts together, and let's pray and ask him to speak to us this morning. Dear Father, we thank you for all the things that you have said in your word, things about yourself that are true, that we can hold on to when there's so much uncertainty in our lives. But Lord, you know, God, how pr prone we are to forget and how many reminders we need. So we ask you on this Sunday, October 29th, you'd remind us again You'd speak to our hearts as you always do, God, as you know how to. To encourage us where we need encouragement, to convict us where we need to be convicted, to challenge us where we need to be challenged, to heal us where we need to be healed. Lord, you know what every single one of us needs, Lord. And so that's why, Lord, we are taking our eyes off of ourselves and we are looking to you and we are asking you in your compassion, please speak to us. Do you ask the Lord right now in your own words, it could be something as simple as, Jesus, please speak to me, but would you ask him from your heart to speak to you? Christ's name. Amen. So at the end of 2020, Gallup released a study the, that examined the, the state of mental health in America. They looked at two years, 2019 and 2020. Well, you can kind of guess where this probably went, 2020 being one of the worst years that many of us can remember. But they asked participants to rate their mental health. And in nearly every category, they saw a decline in the number of people who said, who rated their mental health as being excellent. So in nearly every single category, didn't matter. Regardless of being male or female, you had less people saying that their mental health was excellent. Regardless of political affiliation, right? Didn't matter who was in office. Um, regardless of age group, Regardless of household income, so if you think, oh, people who have more money, who are more, maybe more upwardly mobile, maybe they weren't as depressed. No, regardless of household income as well. Nearly every single category of people rated their mental health as worse in 2020 than in 2019, except for one, all right? Those who weekly, not monthly, not semi-monthly, but weekly attended religious gatherings maybe like, wait a second, did pastors conduct this study? Like, what is this? Like, did you do this, Jason? No, like, that's Gallup, right? In nearly every single category, the only group that didn't see a decline but saw an increase in the number of people who said that they rated their mental health as being excellent were those who weekly were gathered together with a religious community. Because here's what we know. Social psychologists will say this too, that what allows people to endure suffering, what makes them more resilient, is to be in a community that's going to help you make sense of what you're experiencing. Especially if that community believes that this world is not all that there is. That there's hope beyond it. 
And that there is someone who loves us and can actually make all of our sorrows, it will, all of our sorrows will be swallowed up into joy one day. Who make that kind of worldview plausible. Make it possible. We're story-formed people. We're constantly looking for meaning in the events of our lives. We need people to help us make sense of it. But there are times when, even with a community, we're still left wondering why. Even when you have it. Like, why the loss, Lord? Why the pain? Why did you let me suffer the way that I did? Now, there are many reasons we suffer, sometimes because of choices that we've made. Other times because of choices that others have made that affect us. And then there are times when we suffer and we don't, we don't know why. We can't point to anything anyone has done or anything that we've done. We're just, we're not sure why. Maybe even if you have some other, you fit in some of those other categories, you might still be wondering why. And this morning, we're going to meet a man who wanted to know why. And in an encounter with God, he gained so much more. He gained peace. In fact, he got a gift. And I, I, I mean this in every sense of the word. He received a gift. The ability to accept what he could not understand. He went in with questions. He wanted to know why. He wanted an explanation. And God gave him this gift instead. The ability to relinquish the need to understand. The, the control. To accept what he could not understand. But how? How did he get there? What was it about his encounter with God that changed him? Well, he was confronted by two things. Confronted by God's great wisdom and God's holy presence. So this is what I'd like for you to do right now. Maybe there's something in your life where you're wondering why you continue to suffer or why God allowed something into your life. You're, you're, you got a Christian community. Maybe you've moved on to some degree, but you're still wondering. There are these times where you're just, you're haunted by the question of why. I just want you to bring that to mind right now. We're going to trust and ask that the Lord would do a surgical work in our hearts, that we can also confront his great wisdom and his holy presence and find peace. Let's look at the first one, confronted by God's great wisdom. Some of you may be familiar with the story of Job, and if you aren't, here's a summary, all right? So Job was a man who is known as the greatest of all the people in the East. That's quite a description. Like, of all the people in the East, he was the greatest. And here's some of the things that were true about his life. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. I get, apparently, when you're reading this, and if you're in the East, you're like, wow, man, this, guy, this is the greatest guy in the East. <laughs> Many servants, and he had 10 children. He was a man who walked with integrity before God. So much that in the story, in the very beginning, God talks to Satan and said, hey, Satan, take a look at my, my guy Job here. He walks with integrity before me. And Satan responds by saying, of course he does. Of course he honors you. Look, look, how, look how many like, oxen he has. Look how, many, how rich you've made him, how prosperous he is. You've protected him. Remove some of that, and you're gonna, you know what you're going to see? You're going to see that he's going to curse you to your face, God. So what Satan's saying there, basically, that his faith depends on the circumstances of his life. Like, the only reason he's devout, the only reason he's walking with you is because you have created such a favorable situation for him. But if you remove that, he's going to curse you. So God says, go ahead, do whatever you want. Just spare his life. So in one day, the following happens. A messenger came to Job and reported, some people raided your property, they stole your oxen and donkeys, and they killed your servants. 
Before that person could finish talking, someone else came in and said, fire came down from heaven and burned up the sheep and your servants. And before he could finish talking, someone else came in and said, some other thieves stole your camels and killed more of your servants. And before he could finish talking, at this point, Job is like, like, <laughs> right? Like, you can't, like, nobody can finish talking. Before he could finish speaking, someone came in and said, there was such a great wind in the wilderness where your children were having dinner, and the wind caused the house to fall on them, and all of your children are dead. All in one day. He tore his clothes, shaves his head, falls down, and get this, he worships. That's what it says. He worships God. How can he worship God amid suffering? Well, one thing we find in Scripture is that suffer, that it's, one thing we find is that suffering and worship are not incompatible. They're not opposed to each other. They actually often go hand in hand. In fact, the one book in the Bible that we tend to uh, see as the, the book of worship or the song book or the hymnal in the Bible is the Psalms. And 70% of them are laments. 70% of the Psalms are people crying out to God in some kind of grief or mourning for something. Worship and suffering are not opposed to each other. They often go hand in hand. Job worships God, but he still has questions. In fact, the rest of the book is all about him wrestling with God uh, with the questions that he has in his heart. So, for example, let's go ahead and read. It's on the back of your bulletin, starting from verse 20. Chapter 13, verse 20. Only grant me these two things, God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me and I will answer or let me speak, and you reply to me. In other words, what he's saying is, God, make it safe for me to come before you right now and present my case. I've got some things to say, right? Like, I, I have some complaints to make. I, I want to say some things to you. Remove your hands so that I can actually come before you, and you can reply to me. Verse 23. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Will you torment me? A windblown leaf? Will you chase after dry chaff? What have I done, God? Like, what are my sins? Like, tell me what I've done in my life for you to treat me this way. And like, why are you pursuing me? What? I'm nothing more than a, a leaf that's cut off from life, that's driven by the wind. Why are you so relentless in causing me to suffer and pursuing me in this way? Elsewhere, it's not here in the back of your bulletin, but he curses the day that he was born. He, he wishes that he could die. Right? He, he thinks it's better that he would not have ever have even been born at all. All those things. Again, he's presenting his questions. He's bring, bringing his grief. Verse 26. For you write down bitter things against me and make me reap the sins of my youth. He's not sure why. His friends uh, tell him it's probably because of something you did because God is just. They actually believe that you, his friends who try, the community that tries to comfort him say that you must have done something wrong. There's no way someone would suffer like this unless God is punishing them, right? But Job tries to maintain his innocence, but here he's making some concession. He's saying, are you making me suffer for things that I've done in my youth? Like when I was immature and ignorant, when I didn't know you, am I reaping the, 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 the consequences of that? Verse 27, you fasten my feet in shackles. You keep close watch on all my paths by putting marks on the soles of my feet. He doesn't know why yet, but he feels like God has imprisoned him. God has held him, he's putting him, he, he's imprisoned him without giving him a trial, without telling him what the charges are. Now, believe it or not, at the end of the book, with all that I've described, we, we discover 
by God's own testimony that Job didn't sin in anything he said to God. What, what incredible permission we have, to be honest with God, about our grief, right? And all that Job said, he did not sin against God. None of this was sin. I've quoted him before, but uh, Doug Logan, he's a pastor, um, now he's in Virginia, you've heard him speak before, and he said once to our community, you know, complaining about God is a sin, but complaining to God is a psalm, right? And so he's not complaining about God, he's making his complaints to God, and Job wants to know why, and God is going to answer them, but get, get this, God doesn't tell him why. At no point in the story does God tell him why or give him an explanation. God confronts Job instead with his great wisdom. That's what he does. That's his response. Let's read 38, 1 through 4, and then 39, 1 through 4. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. I'm going to keep reading, actually. This is not in, your, in the back of your bulletin, but you could just listen. God continues. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What were its fo- where, on what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it bur- burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed its limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Where were you in all of that, Job? You see, Job had questions, and God answers Job, like he always does, with questions of his own. And the questions, God's questions force Job to accept not just the reality of not knowing why he suffered, but Job doesn't know so much more than that, right? Job has to consider just how much he doesn't know and how much God does know. God is aware of everything that happens in creation. He knows why the waves stop where it does, right, on the beach, on the shore. He knows, like, all all, all the, he's the one that created all the laws of physics and, 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 and in wisdom made it all, right? How everything is intricately interwoven and involved and relies upon each other. In wisdom, God has made them all. And then get this, in verse, chapter 39, verses 1. This is on your bulletin, verse 1 through 4. God goes even down to the animals. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. Now, if you're like me at this point, you're like, so what? (laughs) Okay, like, what on earth does this have anything to do with my sheep, my oxen, my donkeys, my kids, right, that have died? Like, I'm asking you why, and you're talking about, like, waves, and mountain goats? Billy goats? Like, what does this have to do with anything? At the end of the story, things get better for Job. He ends up gaining back double what he lost. Like, God destroys that and actually grows his family, and he ends up having, I think, even more children than before. Like, so God ends up giving a lot back, but it's a, there's a nagging question. Why did you do it? 
Job never gets the answer. Like, okay, clearly, whoever wrote it, right, if it was Job, maybe got some insight at some point. But the way the story ends is that God never actually explains to him why. And that's one of those things. It's like, it's got a happy ending, but it's still somewhat unresolved. It's like when you hear a story, read a story or watch a movie, and it's got a great ending, but you're just like, oh, there are a lot of plot holes there, right? Didn't all make sense. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, say something that I think is maybe blasphemous to some of you, but uh, uh, I think Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight series, the Batman series, is a little overrated, okay? There's Batman Begins, which was excellent, excellent. Dark Knight Rises, okay. Heath Ledger kind of carried that. And then the last one, I don't know what to say. Like, I mean, it was a great ending, but there were so many plot holes. Here's an example, okay? How did Bruce Wayne go from being in an underground prison cell in the desert with a broken back to climbing and leaping his way up to the ground and somehow find himself in Gotham the next day without a cell phone, with no money, and no vehicle? I know, some of you be like, he's Batman. I mean, that's, that's enough, right? Like, he's Batman, Jason, come on. Like, I mean, and it ends well. It's great, but it's, that's what it's like sometimes. We, there's still so many things unresolved. Like, it's a story about a man. Job's story is a story about a man who lost everything and then gained everything back and was prosperous again. But you're like, what was the point? He was walking with you, right? He was in a relationship with you. You even said he didn't do anything wrong. Like, he didn't sin against you. What was the point of all of this, God? God never answered Job's question to know why. I think there are two reasons for this. One, this is speculative, but I think one of the reasons is because when we go through things and we want to know why, I think God doesn't tell us. Like, I think it's important for every person who follows Jesus to know what that's like. God doesn't tell us because the temptation in Eden was to know as God knows. I think if you're a Christian, at some point you're going to experience something and you're going to be desperate. You're going to long to know why and it's going to be your undoing. It's going to be an opportunity for you to somehow replay the story of Eden and instead of, instead of succumbing to the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden, you're going to be able to trust the Lord and submit and surrender to the fact that you are not God. He is God. He knows and that is sufficient. For God to always have to answer us, to explain himself, is to perpetuate the poison. Right? If God always had to give you an explanation for what he does or why he does things the way he does or make you understand, it would perpetuate the poison. Instead, he draws it out and leads us to worship when we can find peace, even when we don't understand. The second reason I think this happens is because I don't think our minds can comprehend it even if you try to explain why. I don't think we would get it. Like, there'd be so many other things that he'd have to explain. Consider Job, for example. God could have said, all right, Job, your suffering is going to help people for centuries. People who think, man, can it ever get any worse? They're going to read about what all happened to you in one day and realize, wow, that guy had it really bad, right? There are going to be so many people who need to, that, that will resonate with your story. Help them endure what feels like unrelenting suffering. And it's going to be one of 66 books that are going to be put together that call the Bible. And it's going to point all towards a mediator that you're hoping for that's going to stand between you and me. A mediator, the Messiah, and his name is Jesus. And one day he's going to suffer too. And through his suffering, the world will be saved. 
He's going to die on a cross. I'll explain what a cross is a little later. But there was like a Roman government. This is the way they would crucify people. And they, this was their execution. All right. Thousands of years, people would gather in homes, underground, ch- underground churches, in other parts of the world, in schools, and worship Jesus. 2,000 years from now, a multicultural church will gather in a public school, will read about your story, and will find comfort when they hear about the way that you suffered and worship God. Could have said all of that. But what did he do instead? He said, oh, Job, when do the mountain goats give birth? Do you know that? If you don't know the things that are basic to my knowledge, how will you understand the things, the complexity of the human story? Like, if, if you don't know the things that are basic to creation that I know, how do you understand what I'm doing in the universe? what I'm doing in the human story and the way your suffering plays a role in that. Job went in wanting to know the answer to one question, why? But he encountered the greatness of God's wisdom and it gave him this gift instead, the ability to accept what he did not know. But God did and that was enough for him. Let's look at the second thing. He was also confronted by God's holy presence. What did Job really need here? What did he really need? He, know, he knows God is wise. If you read throughout the entire book, like everything he says about God is, I mean, he knows God is great. He knows God is wise. He knows God is powerful. But he needed to confront that greatness again. He needed to behold it again. In terms of knowledge, listen to what he said earlier. Again, this is not on your bulletin, but I'm just going to read what he said in Job 12, 13 through 16, okay? With God... Our wisdom and might means I know you're wise. I know you're strong. With God are wisdom and might. He is counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. What's he doing there? He's saying, I know you're wise. I know you're, you've got, uh, that everything is in your hands. I know you're sovereign. No one can stay your hand. He knows those things, right? He's reciting them. Job knows truths about God, but those truths provide little relief. So what does he need? It's important, but it's incomplete. He needs more than information. He needs more than an explanation. He needs a person. He needed the reality of God's presence. He needed to to have all those things that he intellectually knew about God to become real before him in a way that would change his heart and mark him, that would make him give up the control, the need to know why. Why did you do it, God? He needed to encounter God's presence in a way that would humble him and disarm him. And that's what he gets. Let's read, this is in your bulletin, 43 through 5, and then 42, 2 through 6. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. 42 verse 2. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I have spoken of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. 
you said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. My ears had heard of you. That's why you can recite the things that you've heard. But now I have seen. I've experienced the things that I had heard. Right? In a way that what he says here, he says, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. But a better translation would be, I despise my arguments and I comfort myself in dust and ashes. You're like, well, why didn't they translate it that way? I don't know. But that's, that's really what it means. Right? I reject the arguments that I was making, I despise those things. I turn away from my arguments. I'm abandoning it. And now I comfort myself in dust and ashes. Why? Because his ears had heard of God, but now his eyes had seen. Now, God did not physically appear to Job. So this is not like literally my eyes have seen you, but it's what I've said before. That all the things that he had heard about God have now become real to him. This is what God is really like. If you remember, uh, I've shared with you before, C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest Christian writers of the 20th century, he wrote a book about the death of his wife and his grief over the death of his wife. And he lost his wife to cancer. And this this man who had written just such incredible things about God, uh, uh, apologetics, defending the faith, and why God exists, and all these things, towards the end of his life, when he lost his wife, like his faith starts to unravel in some ways. And at one point in the book, he says, the great danger is not that I'm no longer going to believe in God, right? Because he comes to a point where he's not sure if God is good, if God sees, or if God is just. He doesn't understand why God would let his wife die. Why would God allow him to have, he was single for most of his life, and then he finally got married, and within a few years, he lost his wife. He didn't understand why God allowed that to happen, right? So his faith begins to unravel, and at one point he says, the great danger is not that I'm going to no longer believe in God. It's worse. It's that God does exist, but this is what he's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. This is what he's really like. Job does the opposite. Towards the end of Lewis's book, he ends up regaining his faith again, but Job does the opposite. He abandons his arguments because he realizes what God is like. I've heard of you. Now my eyes have seen. And he finds comfort in that. Like, you want to know why certain things have happened in your life, why God has allowed you to suffer the way that you have? why he said no to certain things that you've prayed for, but yes to other people, and it just seems like you're trying to do everything that you can t- to follow him and obey him. You're, you've got all these questions, and you've got, you want an explanation, but what if what you really need today is not an explanation, not more information? What if what you really need is a person whose great love, whose great power, and whose glory just needs to wash over you? Wash over you in a way that dwarfs your questions, that actually can lead your heart to worship and to trust even though you don't understand. And therefore, you can rest, not in knowing why, but rest in knowing who he is and all that he is for you today and all that he knows and all that he can do with your suffering. So what do we do now? Just confront this wisdom, wait for a whirlwind? No. Because God is not going to answer us in a whirlwind. Your family has done so much more. The wisdom of God and the reality of his presence came in a person, in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord.
He came running to us into this world, born in a manger, with no beauty or majesty that we would desire him, with no place to even lay his head. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And Jesus is the one that makes us abandon those arguments that say God is not seen, God is not good, God does not care, God does not love, and God is not with us. Jesus is the wisdom of God, and he is the person, the person of God made flesh that makes us abandon our case because Christ not only shared our sorrows, but took our sins upon himself. That means that he is God in our mess. That means he is God in our pain, in our sorrow, that is God in our place. Jesus identifies with us in our darkest hour in ways that we could not even comprehend in the fact that he bore our sins in his body. He identifies us with us in our darkest moment in a way that we couldn't comprehend. But even if we can't comprehend it, what do we do? We gladly accept it. We gladly receive him. Job wanted to know why, but he received so much more. He received the gift that can be ours today, the ability to accept what we don't know, to let go of our need to understand and cling to Jesus, who is the wisdom and presence we desperately need. I'm going to conclude by reading a liturgy from Every Moment Holy, Volume 2. It's called A Liturgy for Embracing Both Joy and Sorrow. Here's a prayer that we can pray before we go into a time of reflective singing. Do not be distant, O Lord, lest I find this burden of loss too heavy and drink from the necessary experience of my grief. Do not be distant, O Lord, lest I become so mired in yesterday's hurts that I miss entirely the living gifts this day may hold. Let me neither ignore my pain, pretending all is okay when it isn't, nor coddle and magnify my pain, so that I dull my capacity to experience all that remains good in this life. For joy that denies sorrow is neither hard won nor true nor eternal. It is no real joy at all. And sorrow that refuses to make space for the return of joy and hope in the end becomes nothing more than a temple for the worship of my own woundedness. So give me strength, O God, amidst the pain that leads these days. Give me courage, O Lord, courage to live them fully, to love and allow myself to be loved, to remember, grieve, and honor what was, to live with thanksgiving in what is, and to invest in the hope of what will be.